Life Audio. Welcome to Truth Tribe with Doug Grothuis, where we seek the truth about the things that matter most through reason and evidence. Have some fun along the way. Today, I would like to continue my discussion of influential books and authors, and I'd like to begin by quoting a fantastic book, deeply insightful by Neil Postman, called Amusing Ourselves to Death, about the nature of reading and meaning and knowledge. Postman writes, One must begin, I think, by pointing to the obvious fact that the written word and an oratory based on it has a content, a semantic, paraphrasable, propositional content. This may sound odd, but since I shall be arguing soon enough that much of our discourse today has only marginal propositional content, I must stress I must stress the point here. Whenever language is the principal medium of communication, especially language controlled by the rigors of print, an idea, a fact, a claim is the inevitable result. The idea may be banal, the fact irrelevant, the claim false, but there is no escape from meaning when language is the instrument guiding one's thought. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with the King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. that one may accomplish it from time to time. It is very hard to say nothing when employing a written English sentence. What else is exposition good for? Words have very little to recommend them except as carriers of meaning. The shapes of written words are not especially interesting to look at. Even the sounds of sentences of spoken words are rarely engaging, except when composed by those with extraordinary poetic gifts. If a sentence refuses to issue forth a fact, a request, a question, an assertion, an explanation, it is nonsense, a mere grammatical shell. As a consequence, a language-centered discourse, such as characteristic of 18th and 19th century America, tends to be both content-laden and serious, all the more so when it takes its form from print. It is serious because meaning demands to be understood. A written sentence calls upon its author to say something, upon its reader to know the import of what is said. And when an author and reader are struggling with semantic meaning, they are engaged in the most serious challenge to the intellect. This is especially the case when the act of reading, for the act of reading, for authors are not always trustworthy. They lie, they become confused, they overgeneralize, they abuse logic, and sometimes common sense. The reader must come armed, in a serious state of intellectual readiness. This is not easy, because he comes to the text alone. In reading, one's responses are isolated, one's intellect thrown back on its own resources. To be confronted by the cold abstractions of print, of printed sentences, is to look upon language bare without the assistance of either beauty or community. Thus, reading is, by its nature, a serious business. It is also, of course, an essentially rational activity.
Let me continue in my bookish list of influential books and authors. Last time, I mentioned A.W. Tozer, Blaise Pascal, Carl Henry, C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, G.K. Chesterton, Harold Netlin, Harry Blamers, J.I. Packer, J.P. Moreland. And I'd like to continue the list with James W. Sire, passed away in 2018. I'll make mention of a few of his books first. The Universe Next Door, a basic worldview catalog, went through many editions before the final 2020 edition, which was issued posthumously. This book, in many ways, got the idea of worldview on the map for evangelical Christians. I learned it as an undergraduate at the University of Oregon. I've taught through many editions, I think all the editions of the book, except for the last one. And what Jim Sire does is explain the idea of a worldview as a set of assumptions or presuppositions about the basic makeup of the world. And a worldview involves certain issues like the ultimate reality, nature of the universe, meaning of humanity, the basis of ethics, the meaning of history, is there an afterlife? And Jim explains the idea, the concept of a worldview, and then explains the Christian worldview, and then gives a history of Western philosophy, in a sense, by going through deviations from the Christian worldview, starting with deism, and then naturalism, nihilism, existentialism, and so on. I also recommend his book, Habits of the Mind, which is about developing a Christian mind for the glory of God, very similar to a book I mentioned last time by Harry Blamires, The Christian Mind. And another book called Scripture Twisting, 20 Ways Cults Misinterpret the Bible. That came out in 1980, and that's sort of a backwards way of learning how to do hermeneutics. That is, don't commit any one of these 20 fallacies, and you'll be in pretty good shape with interpreting the Bible. The next author, and I'm not going in any definite thematic or chronological order, is the great a pastor and theologian, John Calvin. I read uh, very big portions of his Institutes of the Christian Religion as a young Christian. And uh, while Calvin can be criticized, because after all, he was a Calvinist, Calvin was a rigorous exegete, a formidable theologian, a serious pastor, and one of the great shapers of Western civilization. I am a Calvinist. I am a Christian first, and uh, Calvinism is down the road a ways, but I think that John Calvin is definitely worth reading, studying, thinking about. Whenever I preach, I always check his commentaries on the text that I'm preaching on. So, Calvin's Institutes. Next, John Stott, the great Anglican, evangelical, teacher, preacher, mentor, missiologist. I'll just mention two of his books, uh, the magisterial book, The Cross of Christ, which explores the nature of the atonement. I went back to that repeatedly when I was adding two new chapters on the atonement, the second edition of Christian Apologetics, and then his book, Basic Christianity, which is both an explanation of and a defense of 
Christianity that centers on Christ. Two masterful, profound books. Next, the author Ken Myers, who's only written one book, but a very insightful and significant book called All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes, Christians and Popular Culture. It was published in 1989. I used that for many years at Denver Seminary and a class on Christianity and culture. And uh, Ken understands Scripture quite well on culture, and he also holds the view that not all culture is equal. There's such a thing as high culture, the more refined sort. There's folk culture and there's pop culture, and pop culture is intrinsically limited in terms of the depth of what it can communicate about reality. Ken Myers went on to have a tremendous ministry in cultural apologetics with his Mars Hill audio, which I highly recommend. He interviews theologians, historians, cultural critics about what we should understand about various intellectual and cultural themes that shape the culture and shape the church in which Christians need to understand to have a faithful witness. Next, the book I quoted from a few minutes ago, Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is a critique of a culture awash and enthralled with television and the limits that imposes on our intellect and on our imagination. And then a more theoretical work called Technopoly. Also recommend his book on philosophy of education called The End of Education. Postman was an extremely clear writer, a media theorist, much more lucid than the sometimes frustrating and paradoxical Marshall McLuhan, but McLuhan certainly worth reading as well. His book, uh, Extensions, uh, Media Extensions of Man, is a significant work of social criticism, came out in the 1960s, I believe 63, I don't have it written down here. But uh, McLuhan could lapse into fuzziness at times. So, Postman is really the better read on these issues. And then we have Oz Guinness, a friend of mine, and someone who's influenced my understanding of society as much as anyone. First read his book, The Dust of Death, and so uh, undergraduate about 1977, came out in 1973. That was a critique of the counterculture. Did a book on the problem of doubt called God in the Dark, which I've taught from for many years. Excellent book on postmodernism came out in 2000, the same year as my book, Truth Decay, called A Time for Truth, and then another thematic book that's really timeless is called The Call, which is on understanding this doctrine of the kinds of opportunities and obligations every Christian has before the face of God in this world. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. 
Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Next, we want to talk about Rusas John Rush Dooney, the father of Christian Reconstructionism, a movement that emphasized postmillennialism, biblical law, and presuppositional apologetics. I devoured Rush Dooney's books in the 70s and 80s, have a whole shelf of his books, died, I believe, in 2001, and his son Mark continues the literary estate. So the books are. I think all still in print, and some new books have been published. Rush Dooney was a social critic, an historian, a theologian, was an independent scholar. I'd recommend working one's way through Institutes of Biblical Law, 890 pages, as I did in 1979. I'm not a theonomist. I don't think biblical law should be applied directly to society today, but we need to know what it is and the wisdom behind it. Then also Rush Dooney's book, his critique of state education, the messianic character of American education. Very significant book. A couple of years ago, I guess just about a year ago, a book came out by Pete Hegseth and a co-author called The Battle for the American Mind. And he was arguing that state education in America was progressive and corrupt from the beginning. And we shouldn't be surprised that it has become so secular and debauched today. I thought, yes, um, the Messianic Character of American Education, which I read 45 years ago. Also, Rush Dooney's books on America, This Independent Republic, The Nature of the American System, and a book that really helped me become politically conservative, The Politics of Guilt and Pity. So I could say Rush Dooney was close to my heart in that he influenced my thinking on many issues, although I ended up disagreeing with him. I met with him years ago at the Chalcedon Foundation, spent an afternoon with him and had some other interaction. But someone, of course, very, very close to my heart was my wife, Rebecca Merrill Grothuis, who passed away in 2018. Uh, she was many things, but she was an excellent editor and writer. And she wrote two books, Women Caught in the Conflict, The Culture War Between Traditionalism and Feminism, and Good News for Women. She also co-edited a book called Discovering Biblical Equality, which came out in 2004 in the first edition. And in that book, she wrote a very rigorous piece of philosophical work called Equal and Being, Unequal and Function, question mark, where she challenges the traditionalist or the complementarian view that men and women are equal in their essential being, but must be different in their function with respect to leadership in the church and the home. She believes that is a illogical construct. So, because it is illogical, it cannot serve as a hermeneutical principle. I'll leave it at that, except to say that Rebecca was as clear and as rigorous a thinker as I have ever known, and one of the most lucid and telling writers I have ever read. Next writer, as we sail through here, 
is the late Richard John Newhouse, who was a public intellectual, founding editor of First Things. He was a Lutheran pastor and writer for many years. I think the last 15 years of his life or so, he became a Roman Catholic. The book I want to emphasize is The Naked Public Square, is where he looks at the role of religion in public life and says that religious people, Christian or otherwise, have a right to be in the public square if they are citizens. The Constitution grants us that. There's no reason to think that politics should be essentially secular. Secular people can be evolved, religious people can be evolved, and we should use the principles and opportunities that a constitutional republic offers us. Another book, not going in any particular order, is a great classic, The Confessions by St. Augustine, which recounts his adult conversion to Christianity after a life of pagan thought and pagan life. I read that as a young Christian in a very obscure translation, really read like the King James Bible, but I worked my way through it, benefited from it greatly. And the most famous sentence from that book is, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And I use that as one of the sentences from my book, Philosophy in Seven Sentences. Two more writers, Thomas Sowell, the great economist, historian, someone I've been reading for over 40 years, the one that really taught me so much about the nature of economics and race, it kept me from being a leftist and going woke. Refer you here to the politics of economics and race, and then a more theo- a theoretical work called The Conflict of Visions, where he says social thinking is fundamentally divided into two visions. One, the unconstrained vision, where human beings are essentially good and simply have to be left to express this innate intrinsic goodness. And then the constrained vision that says, no, we are finite and limited. So one's view of civil government and culture will flow from usually one of those two visions. Sometimes they're a bit conflated. But as I mentioned on the podcast about why conservatives should be Christians and Christians should be conservatives, the constrained vision is really biblical wisdom. Dr. Sowell is 92. He has a new book coming out, I think, in about two or three weeks. On, I believe it's called Social Justice Fallacies. Continues to write and research. A remarkable man. And the last book I'll mention is one I read as a young Christian, probably 1977, by the Walter Martin called Kingdom of the Cults. Dr. Martin was really the father of the countercult movement in the United States. He would look at the basic teachings of groups like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, and expose what they're really affirming because these groups will use the language of Scripture and Christianity. They will talk about God, Christ, salvation, the Bible, but they will attribute different meanings to those terms. And most significantly, they will deny the gospel. So Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cults, first came out in the 1960s. There have been a number of revisions with different editors and so on. Uh, but that book really helped ground me in what is essential biblical orthodoxy. And then how do these various groups 
deny the essential biblical teachings about the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the saving work of Christ, the authority of Scripture, and so on. So, a quick tour through a number of other authors and books. I encourage you all to read, to get into a quiet, well-lit place, unplug all your devices, get out one of these books or a similar book, and read, because reading will shape your soul, will shape your ministry, especially if you are a Christian leader. You need to be well-read, and you need to take what you know through your reading and incorporate that into your teaching, preaching, and mentoring. So, in a world of uh, podcasts and Instagram and Facebook and all the rest of it, we will be reading text, but we'll be more overwhelmed by images and by feelings. So I encourage you, of course, to read and memorize and meditate on the Bible. I want to do a whole show just on the art of reading the Bible at some point. But as a Vernon Grounds, uh, the great patriarch of Denver Seminary, used to say, the Christian should be a master of one book, the Bible, but a reader of many others. This has been Doug Grothuis. This is Truth Tribe. If you want to know more about me or how I might minister to you or your church or get lots of free material, go to my webpage, douglasgrothuis.com. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hey there, it's Nicole Eunice from the How to Study the Bible podcast, and I'd love to invite you to join us as we weekly discover a passage of God's Word together. From beginning to end, from principles to practicals, we are here to make sure that God's Word is powerful and relevant to your life. If that sounds like something you're looking for, I would love to invite you to subscribe. You can go to lifeaudio.com and search How to Study the Bible, and we'll see you there.